We'll go ahead and take a seat, everybody. Thank you for that worship team. Can't think of a better worship set uh, for what we're going to look at today from Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles together and turn to the passage that Chelsea just read. Finishing up today our series, Holy Redeemed, in these uh, middle chapters of Romans. Next week, just an FYI, I began a new series in the book of Romans entitled Holy Transformed. So that will take us all the way to the end of this great book, Romans 9, all the way through 16. So that starts next week. Today, I want to finish up with this passage, a climax, really, to the series Holy Redeemed. And uh, these verses, uh, this is a great summation, I think, of the book of Romans thus far. And the most inspiring statement, even as Chelsea was reading that, the most inspiring statement in that great passage, maybe in the entire book of Romans, is verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says literally in the Greek, we are super conquerors in Christ Jesus. The Greek word here is hupernikao, hupernikao. Let's just say that together, can we now? Hupernikao. That's not a hard one. Nikao means to overcome or it means to, to experience victory, to conquer. And it's related to this word Nike, which means victory. Nike is derived from this word Nike for victory. And you can imagine for a shoe company, that's, that's a good word, Nike, Nike. Well, Paul says here that we aren't just victors. We aren't just conquerors. We aren't just Nikao. We are Hooper Nikao. We are super conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. Are y'all feeling that, Harvest Decatur? I don't know if you're feeling that yet. Y'all feeling that at home right now? Watching? Let me, let me put it this way for you, okay? In Christ Jesus, we are the Harlem Globetrotters. And everything else out there is the Washington Generals to us, okay? In Christ Jesus. Does that resonate with you? Let me say it this way. In Christ Jesus, we are the United States Navy, Okay? And everything else out there is like the Navy for the nation of Liechtenstein, okay? We are super conquerors in Christ Jesus, and nothing can stop us or impede us from accomplishing God's ultimate purpose for our lives. Amen? Amen. This is good, Harvest Decatur. Now, I need to qualify these statements here because Paul is writing this letter, Romans, to a church in Rome, smack dab in the middle of a hostile nation, the Roman Empire. This church that Paul's writing to is in the belly of the beast. They are in the Roman Empire. It's conceivable that some within the church have throughout their lives been persecuted, hurt, tortured. Some within the church might have even been killed for their faith in Christ. Lord knows Paul has suffered greatly for his faith in Christ and his ministry on behalf of Christ. So the, the pessimist in the Roman church right now listening to Paul, maybe, maybe the pessimist among us listening to this right now might say, really, really, Paul, really, more than conquerors? I mean, you, you almost got stoned to death when you were in Lystra. More than conquerors, really? Do you even know what's going on in the world, Paul? 
I mean, you might even say that to me, Pastor Tony. Have you seen what's happening to Christians in Nigeria? Didn't we talk about that last week? What's happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Don't you see the churches that are being burned? Don't you see how in our nation, how, how people are more hostile to Christianity than they've ever been before? Are you watching what's happening right now? How can you say that we are more than conquerors? We are super conquerors in our day. But let me just tell you that Paul is well aware of all those things that were happening in his day. He would not be surprised by anything that's happening in our day either. That, that's not surprising to him. He even alludes to that here with his quotation from the book of Psalms. Look at verse 36. Paul says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What Paul is saying here is not that super conquerors can't be killed or can't be persecuted or won't go through trials. What he's saying here is that nothing, nothing in this world will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what he's saying. That is how we are super conquerors. Here's what he's saying. He's saying your eternity, your future in Christ Jesus is secure. It is secure. And you, you are super glued cosmically to the love of God. You will not be separated from it. They may take our lives, but they'll never take God's love from us. They may kill us. They may oppose us. They'll they may even burn our churches to the ground. They may even burn this church to the ground. They may do those things, but they will never separate us from God's love. The title of our message today is Assurance. Assurance. Anybody need assurance of salvation this morning? If you do, this is the message for you. This is the passage for you. Three assurances for a believer in Christ Jesus. Here's the first one. No power can stop God's plan for a believer. No power. No earthly power. No cosmic power. No supernatural power can stop God's plan for a believer. Paul says this in verse 31. Let's look at our Bibles together. He says, what then shall we say to these things? And to that you might say, what things, Paul? What are we talking about here? Here Paul goes again with his rhetorical questions. Paul is the master of rhetorical questions. There's something like 74 rhetorical questions in the book of Romans. And here's one of them. What, what then shall we say to these things? What things, Paul? Well, these things probably refers to everything that he's written in Romans so far. What, what do we say about all this? But more directly, I think he's talking about verse 30 and verse 29. Paul gave us in those verses, we looked at him last week, he gave us what's called the golden chain of the doctrine of salvation. This golden chain of soteriology for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's the chain. Watch the golden chain here in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So after revealing this, this gold mine of spiritual truth, now Paul says, what then shall we say about these things? What, how do we respond to these fantastic truths about our salvation? What should we conclude about all this? Here's the conclusion. Look at the end of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
Who can stop, stop us if God is on our side? If God loves us and called us and predestined us and justified us and glorified us, will glorify us. Remember that from last week? It's as good as done. Who can stop us? Who can be against us? No government of this world can stop us. Can a human government stop us? No. Can the power brokers of this world stop God's love for us? No. Can Satan and his minions ultimately stop us or thwart God's plan for our lives? No. The church father, John Chrysostom, he says this. He says, yet those that be against us so far are they from thwarting us at all that even without their will they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings and that God's wisdom turns their plots unto our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us? In other words, even our enemies, when they persecute us, they're just doing us a favor. They're just adding treasures in heaven. They're just adding to our treasure trove. Thank you very much, Satan, for persecuting me. I'm gaining treasures in heaven. I'm not just an overcomer. I'm a super overcomer. I'm not, I'm not just a conqueror. I'm a super conqueror. Even the bad things that happen to me are for my own good, for my own treasures in heaven. That's what Paul means here by saying, who can be against us? How can they stop us? And then Paul gives this great, greater to the lesser argument in verse 31. He says, he who did not spare his own son, capital S, son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The logic of this statement is that if God has given us this great thing, his own son, would you give your son for somebody else, your enemy? I wouldn't. God did that for you even when you were his enemy because he loved you that much. If God did that for you, giving his own son, what, what good thing is he going to hold from us? Is it, what, what is he going to withhold from us if he's willing to do that for us, if he loves us that much? You know, do we get to a place in our lives where we've done so much bad or where we've, we've failed God so much that he's like, I'm done. I just can't give anymore. Take him over, Satan, you know. I just, I'm done with him. He, he gave us his son in love for us, of course. He's going to show us mercy and give us all good things after the fact. You know, one of the greatest issues that we have in our world today, I see this on social media, I see this with young people, I see this in my own heart. We struggle, even as Americans, with self-esteem. We do, with feelings of low self-worth. There's, and like I said, just being honest, I, I struggle with this too. There's this insecurity that's inside of us. There are these feelings of low self-worth. And how do we combat that? in our lives how does the world combat it you know what the world tells you to do you know you, you just got to think good thoughts you just got to you know pump yourself up with self-esteem i doggone it i am a good person people do like me look yourself in the mirror and tell that person that you you are special that's what they tell you but what they don't tell you is that goes against the deeper logic of this world because according to, you know, a humanist, secularist worldview, we are not anything significant. We are nothing. We are just a biological Darwinian accident. And, and you know, it's, whether we live or die or do this or that, it doesn't matter. All of us will be dead and buried and forgotten in a few billion years anyway. You know, how do you have self-esteem when that's your worldview? You're just like, man, this is worthless. This is insignificant, all of this. 
Now enter Christianity into that, into that smoke and mirrors. Pump yourself up. Pump yourself up with self-esteem because you are special even though you're really not. Enter Christianity. And Christianity is that worldview that says to you, human beings are made in the image of God. Human beings have value and God loves us. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, says the God of the Bible. You are not a biological accident. You are not a result of Darwinian evolution. And Christianity also teaches that God loves you and that God saved you and that God chose you before the foundation of the world and that God sent his only son to this world to die for your sins and to save your soul. You want to know where self-esteem comes from? It comes from that. That is where your worth needs to be found. If you grasp what God has done for you, if you truly grasp that, then you won't struggle with this anymore. And, and if you do struggle with this, I'm not trying to be trite. I'm not trying to be dismissive. I'm telling you, this is the solution for that. God loved you so much, he gave his son to die for you. You don't think you're valuable before God? Tim Keller says it this way. He says, do you know what ails you today? The reason you're anxious is you're not living as if you're loved. You don't believe you are loved. That's why you're worried. The reason some of you are bitter is because you've forgotten he died for you. You're not living as if you are loved. If you're feeling guilty or if you're flagellating yourself, you're not living love. The problem with us as Christians, and I'll, I'll say this is my struggle, is, is you know, we, f we forget. <laughs> we forget sometimes. Oh, yeah. Christ sent his son, or God sent his son Christ to die for me. I, I am valuable in his eyes. We forget. By the way, that's why we take communion at church regularly to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Go ahead and write this down as a second assurance from Romans 8, 31 through 39. First of all, no power can stop God's plan for a believer. And also no charge can be brought against a believer. No charge. If you prefer the word accusation, you can write accusation in there. No accusation can be brought against a believer. In these next few verses, Paul is going to take us right into a courtroom, okay? And he's going to talk accusation and defense. Paul's going to go full Perry Mason mode in the next few verses. So brace yourself. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The Greek word here for bring a charge against is the word inkaleo. It means to accuse. In a legal sense, it means to bring a charge against someone. It's often used in the book of Acts. If you follow Paul's travels in the book of Acts, he's always got charges against him with something or other. He's always getting in trouble for something. And it's used quite regularly in that context to talk about the charges brought against Paul. So Paul says here, who will dare accuse the believer, the elect? Who will dare accuse a believer? Satan is an accuser, right? Sonia, are you okay over there? <laughs> Alistair, are you listening? Satan is the accuser, right? That guy, it, Satan is, 
before the Lord asking, this, this guy's a sinner, saying this guy's a sinner. Do you know what this guy's done? Do you know what she's done? Do you know what he's guilty of? Satan might do that, says Paul. The world might do that. Even the law of God might accuse you because you are a lawbreaker. But what Paul says here is that those charges won't stick. They won't stick. The accusations can't indict you because Paul says this at the end of verse 31. Look at the end of verse 31. It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. In other words, God says not guilty, not guilty. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, in other places in the New Testament, Christ is described as sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Are you all familiar with that terminology? It's what theologians refer to as Christ's session. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He is your defense attorney, if you will. Christ Jesus is your Perry Mason defending you before God the Father. And, and he's defending you against all accusations before the judge. And when the, the God, I, I want to be clear about this, when, when, you know, when, when God the Son is before God the Father interceding for you and defending you, he's not like they're begging God the Father, please, please, please have mercy. Lord, please have mercy on them. I know he's, he's a bad person, but you know, he's good in, inside. And if you just give him a chance, I know he'll be good. God, God the Son does not do that when he intercedes for you. That's not what he does. He doesn't beg God for mercy. You know what God the Son does? He tells God the Father, be just. Be just with this person. And if you, you don't understand that, if, if that doesn't make sense to you, that's because you don't understand this term, justification. He's asking God to give justice to this person. Why, why, why is God the Son doing that? Because God the Son has paid the full penalty for our sin and it is just and it is right for God to say not guilty, to pardon us for our sin because Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. Is everybody with me? I don't know if I grasped that early in life. That, that you know, it's not like God the Son is up there pleading like, please, 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 please. Please, he is a good person. Show mercy. No, it's, it is just for God the Son to say to God the Father, pardon him. Pardon her. My sin is paid for them. You know, Sonia and I, we've been watching recently our, our favorite movies for whatever reason. I don't know. We're going through this thing right now where we're just kind of revisiting our favorite movies and Last week we watched one of my one of my favorite movies, A Few Good Men. That is a good movie. I love the Tom Cruise character in that movie. I love it when he puts Jack Nicholson on the stand, yelling, I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson says in response, You can't handle the truth. Ooh, I like that. And then my favorite part in that movie is where, you know, Tom Cruise is working to get some accusations against Colonel Jessup and entrapping him, even incriminating him, eventually getting him to confess the fact that he, he did order the code red. 
And sometimes, uh, you know, I'll, I'll admit to you, I told Sonny this the other day, I, I like to fantasize about myself being that Tom Cruise character. You know, the, the, great, the great ambassador for truth. The, the great person in a movie who's the protagonist, who's, you know, crusading for truth. You guys like to think of yourself that way? I like to think of myself that way. I, I'm the protagonist. I'm the guy that's looking for truth. But you know what? The more I think about it, the more, even as I watched this movie this last week, we are not on a cosmic scale. We are not the Tom Cruise character in that movie. You know who we are? We are Jack Nicholson. We ordered the code red. We are the people in this world that hide our sin, that are guilty, that are unrighteous before God, every one of us. And you know what God the Father says? He looks at us, Jack Nicholson's that we are. He looks at us and he says, not guilty. They are not guilty. Tom Cruise accuses us, not guilty. Someone finds out about our sins, bring charges against us, not guilty. Now, why is that the case? Don't get me wrong, just, just to be clear. We are guilty, okay? <laughs> We're sinners. But you know why God the Father says not guilty? Because God the Son is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he intercedes for us. And God the Son says, she's with me, he's with me. I pay the penalty for that person's sins. And it is right and it is just for you, God the Father, to forgive them. And so God the Father looks at his son and then he looks at us and he says not guilty. No charge can be brought against a believer. No accusation because we belong to Christ. Satan says before God the Father, Satan says, do you see that guy, Tony Caffey? Do you know what that guy has done? You're going to let him get away with that, God? He's a sinner. I can prove it to you. And, and God says, yes, he is a sinner, but look at the scars on my son. I gave up my son for that sinner, Tony Caffey. The penalty has been paid in full. How dare you accuse him? How dare you accuse him? Why is that true? Why is that true for Tony Caffey? Why is that true for the rest of you here? That you are not condemned. That no accusation sticks. No charges against you stick. I'll tell you why. It's because you have been justified by your faith in Christ. And Christ Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. And in the words of the great hymn, he, he interposes his precious blood for us. By the way, look at verse 33 for a second. It says, it is he who justifies. It is he who justifies. This is the last place in Romans where Paul mentions justification. And more specifically, the Greek word dikao. And Martin Luther called justification the article by which the church stands and falls. You know, we've talked about justification a lot in the last year or so working through this book of Romans. And this might be the last time I mentioned justification. This might be the last time it shows up in the book of Romans. But I hope you never forget this. You are saved by your faith in Christ. You are justified. You are declared righteous before a righteous God because of what Jesus has done for you. And he intercedes for you at the right hand of God the Father. 
Finally, write this down as a third assurance from Romans 8. No power can stop God's plan for a believer. No charge can be brought against a believer. And finally, no separation can exist between God's love and a believer. <clears throat> no separation can exist between God's love and a believer. It's like I said earlier, we are affixed to God's love because of what Christ has done for us. It's as if we are cosmically super glued to God's love because of what Christ has done for us, and we will never be separated from God's love. I'll be honest here, verse 35 through 39, what, what Paul does here, Paul gets a little emotionally carried away. He, he does. He just starts to explode in doxological praise for the Lord, for what God has done for him. And Paul, you know, this is really interesting for Paul because Paul's a pretty logical thinker. You know, he's somebody who, you know, like it's, his arguments are like building a house. He builds a nice foundation. He puts the walls up and he puts everything else in there. He puts all the accoutrements in there. That's, that's how Paul thinks. That's how he does stuff. Well, in this passage, Paul just lets himself get, a, get carried away emotionally. And the logic of his argument just kind of, kind of explodes in praise. I'll give you an example. It's, like, it's kind of like some of, you, some of you foodies out there. You know who you are, you foodies. So it's like when you, you eat a, a luscious piece of chocolate cake. And, you know, usually your brain is like, hmm, well, this is pretty good, and the sponge is nice, and it's moist, and you know, I like the buttercream frosting. Everything's good. Everything's put in place. Good work. Some, some of you are like that. And sometimes you take, a, you take a bite of a luscious piece of chocolate cake, and you just say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. You, you know, you don't even think about what's going on. You're just overwhelmed emotionally by what you're doing. Anybody ever have a, an experience like that? Praise the Lord for these taste buds. If you get that, then you get what Paul is saying in these last few verses. Paul says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul is saying in light of what Christ has done for you, in light of his death on the cross, in light of the fact that he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father inter interceding on your behalf right now, in light of all this, what possible thing in this world could separate us from God's love? Tribulation? Pa! No way! Distress? No. Give me a break. Is that going to separate us from God's love? Is persecution going to separate us from God's love? No way. No way. What about famine? What about nakedness? What about the sword? Do Christians die from the sword sometimes? Yes, they do. Do Christians die from famine sometimes? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And if some prosperity preacher tells you otherwise, you tell him, quit talking. Do Christians sometimes deal with poverty? Yes, they do. Are Christians persecuted? Yes, they are. Do Christians die from famine or sword? Yes, they do. Paul concedes that point. What he's saying here is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that happens. It doesn't ultimately matter because those things cannot separate us from the love of God. No matter what happens to us in this world, we win. Even if we die, we win. Even if we get put to death, we win. Look at verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is a grisly quotation right there. 
Paul's quoting from the book of Psalms, and he's saying that sometimes people die because of their affiliation to God. That was true in the Old Testament, true now, true in Paul's day. They'll be killed because they're loyal to God and to the Messiah. They're like sheep lined up to be slaughtered. Does that change their circumstances before God? No, it does not. Does that change the victory that they have in Christ Jesus? No, it doesn't. Verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. They kill us, we win. They persecute us, we win. They line us up and shoot us, we win. Some of you might say, Pastor Tony, this is the most interesting, encouraging sermon you've ever preached to us. I'm feeling really encouraged, but also terrified right now. Thank you very much. Listen, would you, would you, have, would you rather have it the other way? If God said, hmm, you know, I'm going to give you a good life. Everything's going to be great. I'm going to provide you everything you need. But your eternity, I can't be sure about that. I can't really say that you're going to live with me forever or it's going to be good. Would that be better for us? Which would you rather have? Would you rather have an unsure now and a sure eternity or a sure now and an unsure eternity? I don't know about you, but give me eternity. Give me the Lord for the rest of my life. Give me forever. I've got forever in my heart and in my veins. I want that. And I don't care what happens in this world. What Paul is saying here is that nothing, nothing in this world will separate us from the love of God. Even if we die a horrific death, we are super conquerors in Christ Jesus. This is the Apostle Paul's way of saying, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, world, you can't touch me. Even if you kill me, I win. I like what Robert Mounts says about this. He says, Christians are not grim stoics who manage to muddle through somehow. They are victors who have found from experience that God is ever present in their trials and that the love of Christ will empower them to overcome all the obstacles of life. Yes, that's true. Look at verse 38. Watch this explosion of doxology here. Paul says, for I am sure. Are you sure? Are you sure now, Harvest Decatur? You should be. In light of what Jesus has done for you. For I am sure, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah, church. If that doesn't get you fired up about Jesus, check your pulse. Are you alive? None of this will separate us from God's love. Nothing will, says Paul. I mean, look at the couplets here that Paul uses. Death nor life. Angels nor rulers. I learned this as principalities when I was a kid. It could be a reference to demons. 
But I think the idea here is more earthly powers. Paul is saying neither supernatural powers, angels, nor earthly powers, none of those things. Neither things present nor the things to come, no matter how bad it gets now, no matter how bad it gets in the future, no matter who gets elected president, no matter what happens with COVID-19 or COVID-20 or COVID-21 or COVID-22, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing, absolutely nothing in this world will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice a few things at the end of that verse. The love of God is in Christ Jesus the Lord. No Christ Jesus as Lord, no love of God with you forever. If you don't have Christ Jesus on your side, then you are not bonded to the love of God. Your love is bound up in him. Notice also that Jesus is called the Christ. That should be a familiar appellation for you by now. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. He came to die and save you from your sins. Jesus is not some just good guy that taught some good stuff. If that's what you think about Jesus, you don't have this. He didn't come to teach some good stuff. He came to die on a cross for your sin and pay for your sin. He is your Messiah. He is your Christ, your Savior. He died for your sins and he rose from the grave. And then also notice that Jesus Christ is our Lord. The last word in verse 39. He's our Lord. He's not our buddy. He's not our homeboy. He's not our co-pilot. He is our big brother. We dealt with that already in Romans 8. But he's much more than a big brother. He's the Lord. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's the creator of the universe. And we bow and we worship him as Savior, Christ, Messiah, Lord. And periodically as a church, we, we take communion together to remind ourselves what Christ has done for us. of who he is and how he loves us. And we're going to do that in a second. But before we do that, let me, let me close with this. It's a great illustration of somebody who really believed this and lived this out. I heard a story this last week about the great church father, John Chrysostom. I quoted him earlier in the sermon and Chrysostom lived in the 300s. He is a preacher like me. Maybe that's why I like him. He preached expository sermons through the Bible just like me. He preached in Constantinople. I preach in Decatur. The story is told about John Chrysostom that at one point he was brought before the, the Roman emperor and, you know, the Roman emperor, the most powerful man in the world, threatened to banish him for his outspoken preaching and teaching. And after Chrysostom was threatened, he said to, to the emperor, he said, Thou cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. So the emperor said, But I will slay thee. Chrysostom said, Nay, thou cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Whoo! The nerve of this guy talking to the emperor like that. 
So the emperor said to him, I will take away thy treasures. Chrysostom said, Nay, thou cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. So the, so the emperor said, But I will drive thee away from man, and thou shalt have no friend left. Chrysostom said, Nay, thou cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom thou cannot separate me. And then Chrysostom said to the emperor of Rome, he said, I defy thee. <laughs> I love this guy. I defy thee, for there is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. That, ladies and gentlemen, is nerves of steel. And it's almost like John Chrysostom, it's almost like he knew what Paul wrote in Romans 8. And, and believed it. By the way, Chrysostom was eventually banished by the emperor. He suffered greatly for his commitment to Christ. But I'll tell you this, he didn't suffer nearly as much as other Christians have throughout the centuries. Some tor tortured, some starved, some murdered for their faith, martyred for their faith. And they are even now in the presence of the Lord looking down on us, cheering us on to the finish line, to finish well in this life. And, it, it, you know, if you had a chance to pull them aside and, and just ask them, was it worth it, you know, what you went through? None of them would say, you know what, you know, heaven's great and all, and it's great being in the presence of the Lord, but it, is, it was just too much what I went through on earth. It's just too much. I, I take it back. Nobody's saying that in heaven right now. Nobody's thinking that. You know what they're saying? You know what they're thinking right now? I, I can't believe how little I went through. Even those who had their heads cut off. I can't believe how little I suffered ultimately for the good stuff that I get to experience now and the good stuff that I will experience forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We're super conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't you glad that there's nothing in this life that can separate you from God's love? I hope that you know that. I hope that you believe that. I hope that God's word is affirmed in your heart. Let's pray now and then we can take communion together as an act of remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Lord, I want to say thank you for the death that you suffered on my behalf. Lord, I want to thank you for this time of remembrance. I want to thank you, Lord, that we get a chance to remember together as brothers and sisters in Christ what you've done for us. And Lord, I ask now as we take the bread in remembrance of your body broken for us, and as we take the cup that signifies the blood shed for our sins, Lord, I pray that this time would be fruitful 
and meaningful and would spill out into feelings of praise and love and gratitude. Lord, I don't know what the future holds for the men and women in this room. Lord, we've, we've been given a great country. We've been given religious freedom. We have not suffered like those who have gone before us have suffered. But we're not promised that in the future. And Lord, we don't know. There may be some young ones in our church right now who are being prepared to go to hostile places and preach the gospel like the Apostle Paul. Lord, and we may experience martyrdom, death, famine, suffering. Lord, even in this country, we may be ostracized more and more. But thank you, Jesus, that that will never, ever remove us from the love of God. Thank you for that assurance, that security we have in Christ Jesus. We can suffer a little while, Lord. We can suffer a little while. Because we're going to be with you for eternity. Lord, bless this time of remembrance. I pray and move in our midst as we remember you. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.